Lord, give us wisdom and understanding from Your Word as we consider the glory of the Lord Jesus, our King and our Savior. He who is the resurrection and the life, may He give us wisdom, we pray in His name. Amen. Last Sunday, when I took an ill-advised rabbit trail away from my notes, to quote a line from Charles Spurgeon uh, from memory, uh, we ended up at a dead end. Uh, I was uh, wanting to speak about, I wanted, I wanted to add on uh, Spurgeon's quote as an illustration of Christ's identification with humanity. And so I was trying to make the point that um, Christ was truly human, therefore He wept because of the death of His friend Lazarus. And so Christ's tears encourage us to give our own... Uh, I'm sorry, Christ's tears encourage us to grieve our own loved ones who have been ripped away from us by death. Yet, we are to grieve as people who are full of hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I wanted to, to underscore that it is not sinful to grieve in the face of, of death. And here's the quote that I flubbed so badly uh, last week. Spurgeon said about Christ's tears, Salt there may have been, but not fault. So, nothing really profound, but I loved it and it stuck with my memory and it came out, uh, or I attempted to get it out at an inopportune time last week. Christ's tears in last Sunday's sermon pointing us to Christ's humanity. Christ's shout, His shout of command in verse 43, points us to the divinity of Jesus Christ. When He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, obey. And when Lazarus obeyed and came out of the tomb, Jesus might well have said, I am God. Because Lazarus, coming, walking out of that tomb uh, was a declaration of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Lazarus had been in that tomb for four long, hot days. Look at verse 39. Verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. And then look at Mary, I mean, at Martha's uh, response. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. This underscores that his restoration to life was utterly hopeless. Yet Jesus tells Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Jesus is here rebuking Martha for her unbelief. At this point I need to remind you, uh, to look back to verses 21 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have a pew Bible, I want, I really want to encourage you um, to have it open and to look at verses 21 through 27. Because this is important to our understanding of Jesus' rebuke of Martha in verse 40. So in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so she made this strong confession. Jesus is the Christ. Um, you were able to do anything. You are the resurrection and the life. It had been very likely less than 15 minutes since, since Jesus had arrived in town and had the first part of his conversation with Martha when she made her faith-filled declaration that yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yet here she is. They've moved now to stand. They're standing before the tomb of her brother with Jesus by her side. And unbelief began to fill her soul. And I'm not trying to shame Martha. Rather, I want to remind us all how powerfully sin influences believers even at our best moments. It can blind our faith. It can tempt our desires. It can sour our joy. It can encourage our pride. It can warp our obedience in the space of a moment. Even as believers, sin is still powerfully at work within us. Don't underestimate that. John Owen said, Whoever or whosoever contends against indwelling sin shall know and find that it is present with them, that it is powerful in them. Martin Luther said, I fear more what is within me than what comes from without. And if you know what happened to Martin Luther, the whole Catholic Church was coming against him. He was being threatened with being executed. And yet he said, I fear more what is in me in terms of my sin than anything that can come from the outside. And I know that as you have contended with indwelling sin in your own life, you know what I'm saying is true. In fact, if you don't know that this is true, you haven't really looked inside your own life. You don't really know yourself. That can be bad news. But our continual hope is that Jesus Christ, who is able to command the dead to rise with a single command, is for us. And He is at work within us. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Do you believe that? Are you pursuing your relationship with, with Christ with the trust that He is at work within you? Are you progressing in your relationship with Christ with the trust that He is at work within you? <coughs> How practically do we trust in our divine Savior? Well, it all begins in prayer. Prayer, one of the most neglected means of grace that God has given us. I'm going to take just a couple of moments to encourage you to give your attention to the discipline of prayer. Look at verses 41 and 42. 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus then he prays. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe uh, that you sent me. And so Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, prayed. He, pr- he prayed in dependence upon God the Father. And if he was felt the need to do this, don't you think that it is important that we express our dependence upon God by praying to Him? In verse 41, Jesus thanked God that God had already heard Him. The idea that Jesus had prayed even before... The idea is that Jesus had prayed even before He prayed the prayer that we just read. And so he says, I thank you that you already heard me. Uh, in fact, this prayer in verses 41 and 42 was just for the bystanders to hear. If you look at verse 42 carefully, he says, I simply say this out loud. I'm paraphrasing. But I'm simply saying this out loud, this prayer out loud, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So when did Jesus pray the first time about raising Lazarus? If he's saying, you've already heard me in verse 41, when did he pray the first time? Well, I would imagine he prayed several times over the past few days. But I agree also with most of the commentators who say that Jesus' deeply emotional groaning in verse 43, remember that from last week? Verse uh, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Remember that? Well, that's the commentators say that as Jesus is being deeply moved, that he is very likely praying that God would uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. And so I agree with, with the commentators at that point. And I want to make this point. Most of the most the, the most effective prayers that we offer oftentimes don't make it past our lips. They are deeply emotional cries in our heart to God uh, that are not verbally expressed. I love what Spurgeon says about Jesus' prayer in verse thirty three. You don't have to worry this time. I've got it typed into my notes. I'm not going from memory. Spurgeon said, The Lord Jesus cries to God with intense earnestness and finds the most fit embodiment for His prayer in weeping. No prayer will ever prevail with God more surely than a liquid petition, which being distilled from the heart, trickles from the eye, and waters the cheek. Then is God one when He hears the voice of your weeping. Do you know what I mean? I know that many of you do. I hope that all of you do. I hope that all of you have a prayer life that is deeply emanating from your hearts, that is ruminating there, that is crying out to God from the depths of your soul. Jesus calling Lazarus forth from the grave not only points to the divinity of Jesus, 
It also points to the physical resurrection of the body. We've already touched on this the last couple of weeks, but I feel like there's more to be said. Lazarus did not come forth from the grave as a phantom, or as a ghost, or even as an angel. He did not, he, well, he did come out of the tomb as a mummy. Uh, he had been wrapped quite securely by the uh, burial cloths. Even his face was wrapped. Look at verse 44. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was, was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. When Jesus commanded Lazarus to come forth, life entered into his body immediately. All his veins were restored. All his vital organs were made whole. The only thing that was really hindering uh, Lazarus coming forth from the tomb was the fact that he was bound up so tightly with all these burial cloths. In my mind's eye, I see Lazarus stumbling out of the tomb, almost hopping like a, like a um, potato sack because his feet are, are bound together and, and his hands are bound to his side. And so I see him almost stumbling as he comes out of the tomb. Lazarus stands as a beacon for us. Just as he left the tomb, the tomb in a real physical body, so shall we. Whether our bodies are consumed by decay, whether they are ashes by cremation, or whether our bodies are completely destroyed by disaster, they will live again. They will be raised to life. Here's a fact for you. If you are believers in Jesus Christ, not only your soul and the soul of your loved one, if he or she was a believer in Jesus Christ, not only um, will your souls meet in eternity, but that same body that you hugged and that you knew will be seen by you in heaven. The eyes of that godly mother um, which could melt your heart with a glance will behold you again. The hands of that pious father that placed his hands upon your shoulders will hug you again. Not only will you see the, uh, the soul of your infant that, that died in the womb, for those of you who have had miscarriages, you will also see its beautiful body. The resurrection will not create a race of uh, a new race of ghostly or angelic creatures, but actual bodies shall be ours. When will this take place? It will take place on the last day of history here on earth. Those are greatly mistaken who think that the that it will take place before the Great Tribulation or halfway through the Great Tribulation. The Bible says clearly that on the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with a great shout that is as effective as the shout that He used when He called Lazarus to come from the tomb. And on that day, He will call our bodies from the grave, our souls which will have been in heaven 
enjoying fellowship with the Father and with the Son. We'll reunite with our bodies. And we will meet the Lord in the air. Our bodies will be our bodies. But they'll also be perfected, glorified bodies. When all Christians meet the Lord in the air, He is going to destroy the, the heaven and the earth with fire. I presume the entire universe will be destroyed and we'll then arrive at a new heaven and a new earth that He has created for us that will be our home for eternity. When we arrive there, all peoples who have ever lived will be gathered before the throne of Christ where He will preside as judge. All peoples, even unbelievers, will be gathered there before the judgment seat of Christ. So even if you don't know Christ and refuse to trust Him and even hate Him with all your being, your body will hear the shout of the Lord on the last day. Your soul will also hear it from hell. And your body will be raised from the grave and united with your soul. The Bible says that death and hell will give up the dead which are in them. We read it in our responsive reading. And you will come forth like Lazarus. And you will stand before God. I imagine you would rather return to the grave at that moment, but you won't be able to. In a scene from the day of judgment, the Bible records people calling out for the rocks to fall upon them, for the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the presence of the glory of the Lord and from the wrath of God. But you will come forth from the grave to receive the judgment due unto you. And you must come forth and receive the damnation that is justly yours. Hell will be your everlasting portion if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We all justly deserve damnation. We all have offended God by breaking His holy commands and seeking our own ways instead of His. And if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness that was secured for us on the cross by His death and His resurrection, we'd all be lost. And we'd all suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. The resurrection of Lazarus points us to the physical resurrection of the dead. It also points us to the spiritual resurrection of the elect. Lazarus lying in that tomb and corruption had overtaken his body. This is an appropriate picture of the spiritual condition for every soul that is in Adam. Even though we live and breathe, we are spiritually dead. And our works, our spiritually dead works, stink up the place. That's why the world is so bad. It's not because our politicians are selfish and greedy. It's not because of our broken social structures. It's because we are sinners. And we sinners populate this planet. And if it were not for the restraining grace of God, we'd be worse off than we are. And so Lazarus, lying in that grave, spiritually dead, spiritually unable to help himself, rotting, stinking up the tomb, 
is a very appropriate and accurate picture of who we are as sinners. And Lazarus, what could he do to help himself? His his sisters and all these other um, friends and loved ones gathered outside the tomb, gathered in their home, crying and weeping and grieving over them, but no amount of tears that they shed could bring him back. Lazarus himself had no power to bring himself back from the dead. But one word from the Lord Jesus... One cry of command. And the reason Jesus shouted was not to bring more power. It was just so that everybody standing around could see His power. And He said, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus, gloriously, even though I think he was stumbling and a little bit clumsy, came forth from the grave. And so, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ... We came forth when the gospel of the Lord Jesus was preached to us. And the Holy Spirit awakened us from the dead and drew us to the Lord Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. And not of yourselves. And if you are outside Jesus Christ, and you're worrying about that day of judgment, and you want to to know the Lord Jesus, I can tell you, you are absolutely hopeless and helpless. And so I would urge you to cry to Jesus for for mercy. And He delights to show mercy. I was hopeless and helpless when I cried out in my desperation, Jesus, if You don't save me, I won't be saved because I know I don't deserve it. Miracle of miracles. My whole outlook on life changed. Because Jesus rose from me from the dead. And I belong to Him. And so cry out to Him for mercy. Don't tempt eternity. Don't tempt God. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And He'll give rest to your souls. Let's pray together. Jesus, You are the resurrection and the life. And it stuns us to the core of our souls that You love us and have given us life in You. And we know that we justly deserve Your damnation. And Lord, we live here with our eyes focused on this world And there is a world ahead of us of life and fellowship with You. Help us to have a a mature view of things as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Help us to have a a heavenly-minded view of our life and of this life here on earth. As we ask that you would help us to trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.